Well, friends, it's been entirely too long, but we are finally back here at the PPRL Name Change Refusal Studio, and we're going to do a podcast again. How about that? I wondered if we ever be back, but we are back, and that's nice. A lot of business to get to. We've got a great guest today. I think you should be very excited. But I wanted to hit a couple of fantasy football high notes first. Uh, to begin with, uh, we have a new addition to our league. I'd like to give a warm welcome to Alex Um. Uh, it's been long overdue. He's finally going to join our league. And if you're out there wondering, well, how the hell is Alex going to join the league? I can tell you the answer is I am out. Uh, done with fantasy football. My, In some senses, in other senses, as involved as ever, uh, I'm going to continue running the league this year, possibly forever. I don't know. I think this should go okay. If it does, I'm happy to keep doing it. I like doing it. And now I'm less biased than ever. Uh, so it says me, and that's the main source on this sort of thing, so that'll be good. I talked to a couple people over the summer about possibly uh, departing the league. There's some concern we might have trouble getting another commissioner or something, and I thought, hey, I'm happy to keep doing it. And if the uh, good stuff there coincides with other good stuff of me getting to stop paying any attention whatsoever to football, all the better. So I'm going to do just that. I can continue running things. I th- I've always enjoyed doing it. That is my favorite part of fantasy football and especially now I, we got rid of the keepers so that part of the job as far as me getting out legal pads and writing up weird lists of names and numbers there's no more all the better uh we do have you know i get they would it's nothing new we do have one contentious issue to start the season and a little uh behind the curtain magic here i guess you're gonna learn we talk about this a little bit during the podcast that you're about to listen to. The interview I do with our special guest, we talked about what how, what kind of draft should we have. And we went back and forth, and I eventually said that I thought the best plan would be, because uh, as, as I revealed during the episode, that we, we currently have, based on our little straw poll in the email chain there, 4-4 tie as far as uh, whether we should do an auction or a snake draft. And I just... I don't know how to break the tie. I can I can hear both sides. I thought, well, I said on the podcast that what I would probably end up doing would be flipping a coin and then lying and choosing whichever I wanted. But instead, I'm going to flip a coin legitimately. And I have a quarter in my hand right now. It is a 1985 quarter. That's the year of my birth, so that's got to be something right there. And I'm going to flip the coin. If uh, we get heads, we're going to have an auction draft. And if we get tails, we're going to have a snake draft. I'm doing this live on air, so there can be no question as to whether or not this coin flip was legitimate. Please listen closely for the details. Snake draft it is, friends. Hope everybody's pleased with that. If you're not, be sure to tune in next year for whatever weird random changes we make to this league. Uh, As has been pointed out, there are a lot of ways that real changes come into this league at this point. And sometimes it is coin toss but that's okay that is enough of that though with that information in hand i think we're all ready to go on the great adventure that is the paul lavincino episode
excited to announce our, our big guest this week on the other line. It's Paul Avanzino. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing great, John. Thanks for asking. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no reason to mess around. I'm going to go right into the good stuff at the very beginning here. The only thing anybody listens to this podcast for, Paul Avanzino, eat anything good lately? I have. One thing I had that might be surprising, I had some really good pudding the other day. It's called Petit Po. It's Petit like it's a French petite and then po, P-O-T. Um, I heard about it on a podcast called The Pitch. And they were pitching some, some investors to buy into their pudding company. So I thought I'd try it. And it was actually really good. Um, it's some chocolate pudding. It's kind, of, it's kind of pricey. It's like $5 a jar. So it might price out some people, but worth a try it's the best pudding i've ever had so a tipo do you buy this on the internet i bought it on the internet it comes in a box and you buy like i think it's in like in six or eight of them um and they just come in these little tiny jars and so you put the jars in the fridge and eat them straight out of the jar uh paul avancino what year were you born 1982 now, I believe, I could be wrong. I'm sure we'll have fact checkers out there. I think that the standard cutoff that you see for being a millennial is being born in 1982. Uh, do, do you think that's right? Do you agree with that? I think that's about right because I, I feel like I'm right on the border. Yep. I don't identify as a Gen X, but I don't really... I think I might be borderline millennial, but I think there's a lot of millennial qualities that I don't have. I think there's sort of like a middle generation between X and millennial that I more identify with. If you Google, I think it's called the, the Oregon Trail generation. You know, the old old Apple IIe game called Oregon Trail? I certainly played the Apple IIe Oregon Trail, but that was mostly because my school was broke ass, and so we still had those computers until like 1997. That's how um, I as well. Uh, I will say though, if we you might want if you didn't want to dispute being a millennial in any way, I would like to point out to you that you just told me that a Shark Tank podcast made you buy really expensive pudding on the internet, that's and true. that's the most millennial thing I've ever heard. <laughs> That's a really good point. I didn't think about that. Yeah. Uh, I, it, honestly, it, I, I am unabashed in my uh, general millennial tendencies. And I will say that the really expensive internet pudding sounds great. I like regular pudding. Why wouldn't I like a better version of pudding? I probably want that. Um, I'm writing down right now. To yeah, I, think I, yeah, I think I dropped like $40 on pudding. And wasn't quite sure if I was going to like it or not, but it was, it was good. It was tasty. $40 on mystery pudding. We do live in wild days. Um, I, I'm glad to hear it though. I'm going to try. Did, did you just get the chocolate? Were there any other flavors? I just, there was, there's, I think there's two or three other flavors. Um, I think there's like a rice pudding variety as well. I was thinking of trying next. Um, I figured the chocolate was the safest bet. So sure. I'd start there. Um, get the chocolate. How did the people on the podcast, did they think this was a good business? 
Um, I think they did invest in it. I think, yeah, I think they, I think they were wary. Some of them were wary about the being in the food category of a business that it's a lot of competition and mm-hmm. you know shelf space and all that. But I think somebody did buy into it, if I recall. But it was, it was the review of the pudding that really sold me on it that they were raving about the the pudding itself. So. That's what I was going to say. The pudding must be incredible because if your business model is our pudding costs $40 and there's two flavors and you can only buy it on the internet. That's basically it. It must <laughs> just be amazing because it doesn't make any sense. Like it yeah. must just be like, it, every, fuck everything else. This pudding is so goddamn good. I'm going to buy it because it's going to be that good. Yeah, that's basically it. Very nice. Um, we're all excited by that pudding. You're getting your plug out of the way early. That's nice as well. Uh, if I find I'm going to do some tracking after, if I find out you've invested in this company, we're going to have an issue. I'm not going to be a fan of that, but other than that, sounds good. I'm, I'm sure with all these new listeners, uh, you'll be way up there with uh, your, your great investment, making lots of money. Everybody hears this podcast and buys your internet pudding. Uh, the, the next thing I wanted to talk about, I guess we're just we're going food heavy. It's not nothing wrong with that. Paul Evans, you know, I I, I asked you, oh Paul, you're going to come on the podcast. Is there anything specific? you want to talk about and you're like actually john yeah i want to talk about mustard paul talk about mustard john i want to make the case that mustard is the best condiment so here's my here's my argument that mustard is the best condiment so this is based on so basically what is what is good sort of the basis for what's the best condiment and so it's a theory and ethics called utilitarianism. I think that's what he said. And it's and it's basically like what's a moral action? And a moral action is what does what brings the greatest good to the greatest number of people. And so if you take that same thinking and apply it to condiments, which condiment brings the greatest good to the greatest number of foods? And the answer to that question is mustard. So number one, mustard doesn't have any calories. If you look at ketchup, it has, I looked it up, it has 30 calories per two tablespoons. Mustard has zero. Mayo has 180 calories. Even barbecue sauce has about 20 calories. There's a lot of variety of mustards. You can have your classic deli mustard. If you want something fancy, you can go Dijon. If you want something sweet, you can go honey mustard. You want something spicy, there's spicy brown mustard or habanero mustard. There's even all these little weird mustards that I found called Pinot Noir mustard. I don't know what that is. But the <laughs> versatility of mustard is unmatched by any other condiment. It's great on sandwiches, hot dogs, hamburgers, at In-N-Out Burger. You can get a mustard grilled patty. That's a specialty item that you have to ask for. Uh, it's great on chicken, like chicken nuggets. It, it's even in sauces. It's even in salad dressing. The, the variety of foods that mustard is good on is unmatched by any other condiment that I'm aware of. I, I, I'm very inclined to agree with you here. I think that sauce point is especially strong. Can you imagine if you went, to, you go to some restaurant and they got like, oh, we got this chicken dish. It's got this nice creamy mustard sauce. Good. Like, oh, we got this chicken dish. 
It's got this nice creamy ketchup sauce. You get the fuck out of there. So I'm not staying at this restaurant. This place is a bunch of bullshit. Mustard is the one that can pull that off. Even barbecue sauce can it can do that, but you can't pull off something fancy with the barbecue sauce. It's it's gonna have to be a different angle. Mustard can go high, mustard can go low. What are you really? I can't even really think what the other contenders would be. Mustard just is so much more versatile than anything exactly. else. I gave this a lot of thought, and I couldn't come up with anything. I agree that barbecue sauce is is a strong contender, but the versatility just isn't there. Yeah, I guess what it really is, is, and this is also why it doesn't have the the calories these other guys do, is that it doesn't just have a bunch of sugar in it. And so that's where you really, you can do so much more with it because you could make a sauce and incorporate something else and get that sweetness into it, but you don't have to have it. Whereas if you got barbecue sauce, it's just going to, you know, I guess you could get some weird ass kind of barbecue sauce. But, you know, if I'm thinking of a traditional barbecue sauce, it's going to be really sweet. And if you don't want that, and you just can't add it to your meal. Mustard can go into anything. Yeah, it, it can be savory. You, you can just put the standard deli mustard, or or you can add, yeah, you can add, make it as fancy as you want, or as sweet as you want, or spicy as you want. It's it's a great base for for a platform, if you will, on which to launch your flavor palette <laughs> down your gullet. Um, <laughs> you ever get that super that super coarse mustard that's got like half seeds in it? Yeah, that stuff's that, great. I like that. that. It makes great. you feel real fancy. Yeah. Yeah, it's only you know, it's it's super cheap, but you feel like a million bucks. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. You you go to the store, you're like, oh, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna get the French's yellow. I'm gonna blow it out, and you spend like five bucks on the little thing of the weird mustard. You're you're never gonna just like, oh, I can't can't make rent this month. I bought too much mustard. If that happens, you have some sort of compulsion. I don't I don't think it's really a concern. Yeah, I think mustard's a good caller. I feel like I feel biased. I have a lot of german heritage so you know no fucking shit i like me some mustard but uh i guess i mean i guess maybe hmm that would the counter argument here be that we're really making a case for vinegar and that all of these mustards are subsets of vinegar and vinegar is the best condiment that you just blew my mind because vinegar has more applications beyond just food you can clean with vinegar (laughs) exactly that's true. A couple of weeks ago, I got real drunk and I, uh, I, I cleaned the bathroom out with mustard and Gina was just pissed as hell. It didn't go great at all. But uh, so you're right. I, I think you're going to want to go, going to want to go vinegar. I feel like it's a, it's a step too far, though, to give vinegar the credit for mustard because mustard is clearly its own thing. We can't just say that, uh, that, that everything with vinegar in it gets great. Because I, I think ketchup has vinegar in it, too. We don't say that's just all. Yeah, is I mean, vinegar, what, yeah, go ahead. Is vinegar an ingredient, or is it a condiment unto itself? Well, I think it's both. I think that, like, I would consider, you know, I put vinegar on stuff. But when you do that, that is a condiment. But it doesn't get credit for, you know, this mustard has vinegar in it, so that counts as vinegar, too. But vinegar itself is a, I, I would say, an excellent condiment. Um, yeah, I love some balsamic vinegar. Yeah. Or what is it? Is that vinegar? Yeah, I think so. Black stuff in, and you put olive oil and balsamic. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's all really good. Yeah. Um, now, we, we, went, we spoke at length about the versatility of mustard, but I would say it has its limits. For example, the one other thing you specifically said you wanted to talk about today is a dessert item. What's that, Paul? 
that item is tiramisu. So this is the other end of the spectrum. So mustard is good, tiramisu bad. I'll tell you why. <laughs> I had to. So I, I wanted to look up what tiramisu was just so I was certain. So it's a coffee flavored Italian dessert. Now my feelings on tiramisu is that it's one of those desserts that your grandparents would have liked, but it's just somehow hung around to modern day despite being no good, kind of like fruitcake. So I was curious when it was invented. So I looked that up too. Do you want to guess when tiramisu was invented? Oh, I would guess in like the 1600s or something. That's what I thought. It's actually fairly recent. It's 1960s. 1960s? That blows my mind. That's insane. I would have said this was like a traditional Italian dish and like Leonardo da Vinci ate tiramisu. That, that's, what, that's what I thought too. It, it's something that sort of stuck around, but no, it's some invention of the 1960s. So here's my, here's my problem with tiramisu is it looks, it always looks fantastic, right? It's always beautifully constructed and has these like layers. And, but when you taste it, it's just the coffee flavor in it. It's just overpowering like the delicateness of the cake. Mm-hmm. So you just get this like mouthful of this weird coffee flavored composite. And even in its best form, the best tiramisu I've ever had, I would still probably prefer just a standard like sheet cake or a box cake that you make out of a Betty Crocker box. It's it's just so overpowering. I don't in general I'm okay with coffee flavored desserts. I love like my, one of my favorite ice creams is java chip ice cream but tiramisu is just always soggy and it's not even like the best uh like coffee associated cake that exists i would say coffee just coffee cake that you eat with coffee is better than than tiramisu uh well i'll say i was excited when you brought this up because i thought this is going to be so perfect i'm going to be right on board with the mustard take and then turn on you on the next one and instead I'm right here with you again. I, I have a little different angle. I'm not a coffee guy. And in general, like I'm never going to choose a uh, coffee-flavored dessert. Uh, I don't either want the, the coffee ice cream. I'll drink like a coffee beer. I think that can work. Coffee but in general, beer. I don't really want that stuff. I also just in general that any, any of those cakes where they got all the layers and there's multiple textures in there, I'm usually pretty wary of. I know it can work. But uh, do you ever watch that Great British Bake Show, whatever that is on Netflix? No. What's well, that? It's this English show. And uh, it's like a cooking show, banking contest. And it's, it's very exciting and interesting if you haven't seen it. But uh, they're always making these crazy English cakes. And it's like, oh, there's 30 different kinds of fucking foam and sponge and all this garbage in there. And I'm just like, oh, that's just going to feel gross in my mouth. And that's generally how I feel. I feel like the whole gambit here for, for tiramisu is that name. The name is so strong, and if you like it, you probably get to tell people how to pronounce it better. I'm sure, like somebody, Lee Mench, is listening to this podcast, and is like, oh, you know, you guys know not to say tiramisu, but you're still, it, it could be pronounced and really angle everything out there. I, I think that, I think the name is everything. I don't think it's that good a dessert. I'm not into it at all. I Honestly, like if somebody made it and was like, hey, I made this fucking tiramisu, I'd be, oh, yeah, give me some. And I would be nice and eat it and like it. 
But if I was, I don't, I can't imagine what else would have to be on the dessert menu for me to be like, yep, that's the one for me. I got to get that. Tiramisu. Yeah, my thing passed on dessert if tiramisu was all that was offered. You said you drink coffee, beer? I do like coffee stouts, that sort of thing, yeah. What? Um, Is that a, a beer as in like an alcoholic beverage beer? Yeah, coffee? that's the one. Um, they're, they're like more, it's very much a wintertime thing, but those are pretty popular. Um, you get a lot, a lot of like oat stouts and stuff like that can be really good. There's a place here in Minneapolis that does a weird coffee-flavored lager that's really interesting that other people like more than me. People get pretty excited about it, but it's not really my thing. I think that's too far down the coffee road. But that's really like I don't drink coffee because I'm not an adult. Um, but I, I just it, it's never landed for me. I don't know why. So I don't think it's any surprise that the tiramisu. Just like as I said, the mustard kind of just big German guy. I like all the I like the big sausage with pumpkin mustard on is like the best thing. And then I'm not an Italian person, so the tiramisu is not for me. Now I gotta say your last name's Avanzino. You might be needing to eat some more of that tiramisu, but I guess it's a big scam. Do you know who invented tiramisu in the nineteen sixties? Is it like some famous restaurateur or something? It was some restaurant in Italy that gets credited with it. So it was at least Italy. I was pretty confident you were going to say it was like Chef Boyardee or something. There's some, con- according to Wikipedia, there's some controversy about exactly when it was invented. Mm-hmm. But it seems like the best evidence of when it showed up on a menu or recipe is 1960s at this restaurant in Italy. Well, if I ever go to Italy, I will not go out of my way to seek this out. Uh, I got to your your. $40 internet pudding sounds way better if I had to choose between It's way better, I'm telling you. It's well worth it. Okay. Uh, I think we're off to a great start here. We do have to take a quick break for a commercial. We'll be right back. Hi, Phil Swift here with Flex Tape, the super strong powder proof tape to take that can instantly patch upon seal and repair flex tape is no ordinary tape it's triple thick adhesive very, virtually well dissolved to the surface instantly stopping the toughest leaks leaky pipes can cause major damage with flex tape grips on tight and bonds instantly plus flex tape's powerful adhesive is so strong it even works underwater now you can repair leaks in pools and spas in water without draining them flex tape is perfect for marine campers and RVs. flex tape is super strong and once it's on it comes on tight and but flex and for emergency auto repair, Flex Tape keeps its grip even in the toughest conditions. Flex big storms can cause big damage, but Flex Tape comes super wide, so you can easily patch large holes to show the power of Flex Tape. I saw this boat in half and repaired it with only Flex Tape. Not only does Flex Tape powerful adhesive hold boat together, but creates strong, super wider, tight seal. Tape inside is dry. You dog, you just cut, pull, stick, seal. Imagine everything you can do with power of Flex Tape. Oh man, what a great ad! I'm so glad you know we got these these great sponsors here. It's been a, it's been a revelation. I got to say, the the money doesn't hurt. It really helps keep the lights on around here. Uh, I should not have invested in the podcast studio the summer that I took off from podcasting. But you know, the, 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 these the checks keep going out one way or another. So thank you again to all of our great sponsors. Um, next up, I wanted to talk to Paul. I know he has a strong opinion. Paul, we're having a big debate in our league. I, I took a, a straw poll in the email chain about whether we should do an auction draft or a snake draft this year. And I'll tell you, among the votes that count, it's currently sitting at four to four. Uh, very close, very divided. 
And I know you are an advocate for the uh, auction draft. Would you tell us a little bit about why? Yeah, I just think auctions, ultimately, fantasy football is about having fun, having a good time. And auction drafts are just way more fun than snake draft. That with auction draft, every single pick you you have a chance to chime in on or bid up or sit out. So every every time someone makes a decision or some player comes up, it's you're actively involved in whether you want to bid on that player or not. Whereas in a snake draft, you're waiting for 11 picks and then comes your choice and then there's maybe a minute of action for you and then you're sitting on your butt for the next 10 minutes. Um, so there's just more, it's just more fun, frankly, that an auction draft is. And that's, you know, why we do fantasy football for the fun of it. And auction draft, you get more minutes of fun versus a snake draft. I'm really glad you came on the podcast today to tell me about utilitarianism and units of fun. But <laughs> I do get your general point there. And I agree, especially in the sense that in addition to, I do think it's a more fair way of divvying up the players, especially for your top guys. If you do the snake draft, so much of your top two guys is just dictated by who, where you happen to be in the draft. Whereas exactly. if you do the auction draft, you have a lot of say, not total say, but a lot of say over, you know, which of the high value guys do you actually like the most? Or even do you think it's better to sit those high value guys out and like do we have the effect of trading your top two picks in the snake draft and having more picks in the middle of rounds. All those things are impossible in the snake draft. You can really formulate your team how you want to in the auction draft. Yeah, and say like you really think that player you really want player X, for example. Well in a snake draft you may never have a chance to have player X mm -hmm. on your on your team. Whereas an auction draft, you have a chance to have any player you want on your on your team as long as you can afford them. So you have to make those decisions. Whereas snake draft is just sort of luck of the draw of who, who was picked where. And um, if you want two superstars on your team in an auction draft, you can do that. But with you can't do that with a snake draft. How great would it be if there was really a guy named Player X and he wore a mask during all the games and nobody knew who he was? That would be, that would actually make you follow the NFL. Yeah, like, like he had done it like going back to high school and nobody could sort out who he was. And like after every game, he just runs off the field and gets in a car and drives away. And he's just always <laughs> been great. And like he went to like USC and he was the star quarterback. And, and he wears gloves. Nobody even knows if he like what is a racist. And then he goes and kills it. And then it turns out it's Colin Kaepernick. That's what it would take for me to get back into the NFL. Colin Kaepernick sneaking back into the league under everyone's nose. If that happens, I vow I will. Uh, I won't like football, but I will consider uh, paying attention to it again. But he'll show himself when he's kneeling during the national anthem. <laughs> Everyone would see his disgusting tattoos anyway, and know that they could judge him as an obvious gang member and not worthy of their praise. Um, I think the other point you make, though, about the draft, uh, and that it's just more fun. I do, especially these recent years with my terrible performance in fantasy football where it's clear by like after like the first two weeks I trade half my team and then I get worse and then it's just over like the the draft is, is like I don't know what percentage of the amount of fun 
that is for me, I would say about 30% of my fun for the whole season is the draft. And then everything that happens during the season is negative 5%. And then 75% of my fun is being the commissioner and bossing everyone around. <laughs> so I think it makes sense. You know, we can, like, I can't, I don't know how to pump up my, I guess I could try to, I don't know. I fucking do this podcast and yell at everybody and veto trades for no reason. I don't know how I can pump up my commissioner stuff anymore, but you can pump up the draft more. And uh, one, I mean, I guess we can't do it, but one way to pump up the draft is by doing the auction draft. And so this thing, because as you say, it's such a, it's a enormously more active and involved process. That you were involved in everything. I think you make a good point. It's like the the draft. I would say the draft is a significant portion, like you said, a significant portion of the fun. Week to week, it's there's not that many decisions that are made, right? It's maybe should I bench this one guy for this other marginal guy who's going to score the same amount of points, or do I dump sixty dollars on this washed out veteran who is just cut and signed to a new team? Like it's not. It's not too many significant decisions unless you have some trade, blockbuster trade. That's what I was going to say. The other decision you have to make literally every week of the season is to whether just you should just reject Lee Mensch's insulting trade offer or reject it and publicly call him out in the email chain for making it in the first place. Those are like the main things you have to do. And so once you get through that, there's not really that much else. Yeah, I, I don't know. But I, I mean, I guess you could, the counter argument here, and I think that you'd hear this from a number of people in our league as we get older and older, is that 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 uh, that draft, the idea of it being less involved, appealing, way easier to, you know, have the kid on your lap, whatever you're doing, if you don't have to be so into every single pick. I don't know. It's I guess this is also one of those problems of who are we, who are we seeking to help the most? Is it the, the super fan or the person who were just, you know, who is less into the league, Dylan Fallon, and that sort of thing. So I don't know. Um, like I say, I, we did that poll. Like we have 12 people in the league and uh, eight votes that I care about. And it's four to four. So it, I'm honestly pondering, I might flip a coin. And then I thought if I do flip a coin, uh, which way will I decide in advance to say that it went? So that's what I really have to sort out. Um, <laughs> but I, I think that's probably what I'll do. I think in the end, I'll probably flip a coin and then say it did whatever I wanted it to do. Um, do you have anything else about any – do you want to reveal all of your deep sleepers for this season? I have done – so I have – I've actually signed up for a second league this year. It's a work Ooh. league. And I haven't done – so, so all my fantasy footballs have been through this league for the last, I don't know, 15 years or whatever. So this is the first other, this, you know, I feel like I'm cheating on this league, but so be it. But the other league I w- I'm in was a snake draft. And there were like 30 players had to draft. Um, but I did like zero, absolutely zero uh, prep for that draft. Um, I just... Googled ranking of fantasy football players, and I just based all of my decisions on that, you know, ranking. So it wasn't, I don't have any deep sleepers whatsoever other than what's on that list. I was planning to take a similar tack for our draft. Um, 
but maybe I'll do a little bit, slightly, slightly more research for our draft. It is one of those things you have to wonder uh, how much of this can we really attribute to skill? Do we really think that this is, you know, a repeatable ability? I know I'm, I'm saying this in a league that has been won by the same scumbag two years in a row. And so I, I, I suppose that in and of itself would suggest, oh, see, yeah, it is a skill. You just be, be that guy and then you do good. But I, I feel like in large part, you know, there's, but, you know, obviously if you're not like an active manager and you ignore your team and you start a bunch of guys on buys, we can, we know that's a skill is, you know, have, you know, guys who are going to play in the lineup and try to pick up some new guys. If you hear, oh, this guy's going to get a bunch of carries for the Ravens, go grab whatever shitty running back that is and see how that works out. But I, I don't know. I mean, this is also, like, this is what you would say if you were me and you fucking sucked at fantasy football. So I don't know. Who was it that just auto draft one year and won it? Or is that really well? Well, Aaron Lauder skips the draft every year and does it while he's hosting trivia on his phone. <laughs> um, and that's one. I don't remember who won it. Was it Lauder who won it last year? Yeah, it was that guy. Um, it's bad. But I mean, that's also, that, that shows you a lot. Like maybe it's bad to win fantasy football. Maybe it shows you're a bad person. Could be that as well. I don't know. Either way. Yeah. I mean, there must be some skill to it because it seems like the same three people are in it every year. Um, or maybe it's just they're up, are they the ones who update their roster every week? Uh, I, I, yeah, I don't know. Like, I feel like Aaron Lauder used to not do very well, and then he won the league twice. Here, I do. I will say, I feel like Lee is good every season. He is, and then I feel like Pat Polk is almost always really good. He's always in the mix. Um, yep. Paul Evans, you know, I think this is – I don't want to build this up too much, but there's usually in most episodes there's one big memorable thing, and we're going to try something a little different this time. We have a game we're going to play. I've talked to you a little bit about this, honestly, over the course of many weeks now. We've had this this podcast in the works forever, and there's one segment I have always been extremely excited. I wanted to talk about uh, at length – for some time now and that is uh the music video for the uh song i guess song not movie the music video for the song saint elmo's fire are you familiar with this song and or video paul i am now you are now um i wasn't before you brought it up but i have been watching it and listening to it while at work so i am familiar and and would you say that has been at my specific direction Yes. Yes. Okay, good. That makes me feel good to know that I have the ability to like literally control the media you consume. Um, but anyway, I, somehow, I don't know how this happened, but over the course of the summer, I started, I watched this video one day and I was like, this is a weird video because I've never seen the movie St. Elmo's Fire. Have you ever seen St. Elmo's Fire, Paul? I have not. So we're two guys and this is all real. I'm not, none of this is a joke. Uh, I haven't seen the movie saint almost fire and neither is paul and so i decided now this is if you haven't seen the video and you have seen the movie i'm sure that might describe some of you uh the video music video is one of those old-timey 80s videos where it's got john parr the singer of the song and he's in the video 
And then also it has a bunch of scenes from the movie cut into the video. And then at the end, the most magical part, the actors from the movie and John Parr, the singer of the song, on a set together, interacting with one another. Isn't it wonderful? We get we get everything together. So it's one of those videos. And so I thought, you know, I've never seen this movie. I've watched this weird video a bunch of times. I am going to try to guess what the movie St. Elmo's Fire is about based wholly on what happens in the video for the song St. Elmo's Fire. Isn't that right, Paul? You've been trying to do the same thing. I've been, I've been trying. But it's hard to get past the hair, <laughs> and the, hair, <laughs> and the uh, fade, fade cuts. And... There are a lot of hair and dress issues uh, yeah. in this, this song. I guess not in the song. They're in the video. Um, I got to say, I feel like I'm setting this up as though I'm a magician. Like, we've never met, is this your card, sir? But that's not what's happening. This is legit. It's not magic. And then uh, I don't, I guess I don't, I thought maybe there could be a big reveal, but then I realized if there were a big reveal, what it would really be would be me uh, Googling St. Elmo's fire and looking at the Wikipedia page. And I can't, there's no way that's going to pay off. It's either, it's just going to be like, oh yeah, it wasn't that good. So what you're not going to find, like if you, you can do that yourself, or you can just think, oh, I've seen this movie. I know what happens. And then you can think about it, but either way, Let's start out, I just want very broadly, broadly, like I said, we have scenes of John Parr. He's the singer. And then we have scenes from the movie, I assume. I, I assume they did not shoot extra stuff that looks way better than everything shot in this shitty bar with John Parr. And then at the very end, they all meet. And so John Parr spends the whole video hanging out, well, most of the video hanging out in this super broke ass bar it's got like burn barrels in it and it's a disaster and for the most of the most part he's just by himself and there's nobody in there and he's just like scowling and walking around and then sometimes he's on stage in the same bar but now it's nice so i think this imagery is important we also see in the in the, the stuff from the movie we see people uh all the famous actors like uh demi moore and uh, one of those fucking Corey guys and Rob Lowe and Emilio Estevez. This movie has all the famous people, all the asshole guys who did all the cocaine and did bad things. They're all in this movie. I will say, for, most importantly, Emilio Estevez in one scene is like walking into a bar and he's wearing checkered pants and suspenders and a bow tie and... I want to punch him in the fucking face. It is infuriating when you see this motherfucker walking around like he's a hot dude dressed like that. I, I also really, I feel like we made a mistake with Rob Lowe watching him here again. We shouldn't have let that guy come back. I, I, I think this guy is weird. I get a bad vibe from him. He's a super creep. He's been implicated. Nothing too bad. I think some light stuff, but nothing... I think there's much worse stuff out there. We all let him be nice because he was kind of funny on Parks and Rec. Was he even really that funny? Was it just one joke that he did over and over again forever? I think he sucks. Shouldn't let him be cool. Have you seen these new commercials he's in now? No, I don't. I don't watch too much TV though. But oh, so just, that, that what is that besides a slam? I you're saying I do watch too much TV? 
I watch like Netflix or Hulu. Oh, there's commercials on Hulu. Maybe you should open. Well, you probably have the fancy Hulu, don't you? <laughs> yeah, don't even answer that question. I'll just go on. Rob Lowe is in commercials for the Atkins diet. The Atkins diet is back, friends. And if these commercials are to be believed, I am a mere 20 carbs a day away from looking like Rob Lowe. I know that's some bullshit. Rob Lowe, you're on Hollywood anti-aging medication. Don't fucking tell me Atkins diet. What a bunch of bullshit. Um, anyway, we have a bunch of scenes from the kids in the movie. And then they're mostly hanging out and partying. There's one scene we see where they're all walking around in graduation clothing. We also see them in the bar that John Parr is in. And it's all broken down. But they're in it. It's really nice. And they're all like best friends. What I'm thinking is going on is that these kids all went to this bar when they were in high school. Maybe it was like the bar you could drink at if you were underage. And then they all went off to college. And then like five years or ten years later, the bar burned down. Or there was like somebody fucking threw a bomb through the window or something. And they uh, all the kids came back and like now they don't know each other the same way and stuff is weird and then they like either have a fundraiser to like save the bar and bring it back or they uh one of them buys the bar and they all like go there together that's what i think happens in this movie now first off do you think i'm not asking if you think this is real do you think that's a good idea for a movie I think the high school, you know, high school kids grow up together, then disperse to college and then come back and reunite in their hometown is a fairly common theme in movies. If the bar played some significant role in their upbringing and it burned down, I could see that as a viable plot. Oh, I should but, I should know in this scenario the bar is named St. Elmo's. I don't know if that was clear. Saint, oh, I, that's I like yeah. that. Yeah, that works. It doesn't really work lyrically because the song seems to imply that like St. Elmo's fire is not so distinct from like the eye of the tiger, and that when you have St. Elmo's fire, you can do anything. Um. But also, do you think John Parr was like deeply concerned about? They were like, "Hey, write a fucking cool song that says these stupid words in it." And he was like, "Okay," and he just did it. And he's like, "Thanks for the money," and also the song is great. Um, so now, based on your knowledge of the song in the video, if 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 you had to point to something in my theory here that would just be like, "You, you can't be right, John, because of X," what would that be? Now it could also be that's too stupid. But whatever you want to. What if? What if the fire, St. Elmo's fire, because the song is like a burning desire or something, right? Maybe, maybe this bar, maybe it's like a double meaning, right? That the fire, there's a literal fire of the bar, but then if this, if this bar played some critical role in the upbringing. Of these kids high school that that's fueling them maybe in other parts of their life or something i like that i almost like the idea 
they go off into the world and there's always something missing. And it's not until yeah. there's some event, some catastrophic event that brings them back home, not necessarily in the bar, it could be something else. And that that's when they realize, oh, you know, this was always the source of our power. This was why we were such, you know, this is why I, Emilio Estevez, could pull off this terrible outfit was because I had St. Elmo's fire within me. And then when I went off into the world, I lost that. Now that I've come back home, I've been rejuvenated. Yes. I like that. What do you think? Is, now I will say there's also, I find it really jarring. There is a scene in which, in, in I assume in the movie, but it's in this video, where Demi Moore is sitting on like a little sofa in a room flooded with daylight and it's got big curtains and it's really windy and the windows are open and the wind is just blowing in and she's just curled up like uh, she's crying, she's like crying and she's shivering like she's freezing what the fuck is going on there it seems like something really I, bad has happened i forgot what the lyrics were but it's really it's like really on the it was man, what was the lyrics for that scene I just remember it was, it was super on the nose of the tying the lyrics with that scene. It's like, it's just like I think when they say the cr- something about crying and then it immediately cuts to her just crying on the floor, like kneeling on her knees, weeping. It's just, it was really out of place. Maybe. Maybe that was good. That's like the, that's the doldrums of, of them being lost in the world right i was gonna say like maybe her sister died in the fire like her sister was hanging out at uh saint elmo's night at night somebody threw the bomb through the window got a phone call she just found out and so she's just sometimes it's a really like to look at it like i don't i suspect this movie is fucking garbage but to look i mean i just I, i this is an image that is stuck in my head, this this woman, she's on like an ottoman or something. It's a weird thing to be sitting on, and the room is so sparse and empty. And she's just—it almost looks like she's like sitting shiva or something. It's a—it's a very strange image. Um, I don't know what to make of it. Uh, let's see. Do I have? Yeah, I th- those are the notes I had put down. That I will say all from memory. I've seen this video a number of times here recently. Those are the main talking points. Now, based on that, do you want to watch this movie? No. Not at all, right? I have watched this I video. I would not, not exaggerating. I'm sure I have seen the entirety of it 40 times. This I thought about watching it before this podcast, and I couldn't bring myself to yeah. do it. Like I will say, I have made an effort, like a number of times, I have wanted to Google the movie and read what happens in it. But I was like, no, I want to do that. I want to talk about this. I want to get my guess out there and see how close it is. And I'm excited to Google it. But on, I can't even. I I know that if I got on Amazon or whatever, and it's like, okay, here's my four box, put the movie on, I would watch ten minutes and shut it off after having paid for it. I, I, can't even fathom watching this piece of shit movie, but I I, I love the, the the video and the song and the way it makes me feel. Um, the song is really it's, it's a really good say. song. 
Do you want to guess what the Rotten Tomato score for this movie is? Sixty-five uh, percent. The tomato meter is forty-four <sighs> percent. The audience score is sixty-eight percent. Now I'm shocked at that audience score. I would think it'd be nothing but you know people like going back. Oh, I remember that movie. It was fun and loving it. I feel like if it's that, that this this movie must be pretty bad. It must be like a cult classic, like a very small percentage of the people really loved it for some reason and went back and, and rated it. Yeah. I can't imagine you watch a movie from 1985. If you watched it in 1985 and you didn't like it, you would have forgotten mm-hmm. about it and not bothered to go back on Rotten Tomatoes and rate it. Yeah, I, 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 in your head, what is this? Like, obviously, there's like the upper tier of corny '80s movies, and it's everything with John Hughes and Molly Ringwald, and or either or one of one or both of those people. And then I feel like this is like the cut below that, and it's, it's not as regarded as that. But as far as corny '80s movies, this is in that next group. Is that is that where you place this as well? Yeah, it has a lot of heavy hitters in it. it has you know emilio estevez and rob lowe and the lady from uh groundhog oh Day. yeah i meant to mention that andy mcdowell is in this video for like one second and like somebody's about to make out with her yeah yeah it, yeah i saw her I was like oh that's yeah it's super weird it's like she had a better career than half these people i suspect she must not have been famous at this time is all i can figure because there's so many other people who are more prominently featured in this video than her and she's just like oh here's some chick this guy's gonna make out with it's like well actually she's you know outside of like two people she's the most famous person in this movie looking back (laughs) okay i I think we've got this settled the good news is i i almost like the mystery better i don't know if i'm actually going to go back and find out what happens in this movie i probably will but i'll probably watch the video like 10 more times first and see if i can really nail it down uh, I, I think that's the last thing I've got, though. Paul, do you have anything you'd like to plug? I'll, I want to plug electric cars. That So I bought a used Leaf a few months ago, and I have to say I'm really enjoying it. Um, not only is it obviously good for the planet and it's economical because you don't have to buy gas, but the experience of just driving the car is much more enjoyable than driving a traditional gas car that you press on the pedal and it just goes you don't have the noise from the engine so the car is really quiet have a conversation listen to music and not have to compete with the sound of the engine so if anybody's out there looking for a car take a look at an electric car very nice i like it a lot um what kind of range do you get on that leaf? Mine, it's only 84 miles, but the new leaf just came out this year. You can get 150 oh, wow. something, I believe. Yeah. I was going to, I honestly, it, I mean, in a lot of circumstances, it probably means you need to have two cars, but a lot of people do anyway. Think about like what a huge percentage of your driving you do in less than 85 miles. Yeah, exactly. That's, yeah, my commute, it's, um, it's about 30-something 30, 30 miles per day. Um, I re- rarely do I ever, am I ever over that 80-something miles. There's 
And if you're if you're strapped, like at my work, I have charging mm-hmm. at my work. So if I don't have to do something after work, I can charge it at work. Um, so, so I've had it for since March, and I've never you know ran out of electricity. Like a couple, if we have to go on a long trip, then we have a second car to, to go on a long trip. So it works out. What happens if you run out? Is there a cool truck that comes out and can charge you up? I don't know. I was wondering that. Uh, you must have to get towed somewhere. Oh, that's not as much fun. It would be cool if there was like a tow truck, but instead of like the big hook on the back, a big plug came out and just plugged into your car. Someone should invent that. Yeah, just a big battery rolls up, rolls up with an extension plug, <laughs> plugs it in. <laughs> For my plug, I would like to plug a iOS slash PS4 slash, I think, Steam game called Donut County. Have you heard of Donut County, Paul? No, it sounds it's a new game. It's it's pretty simple. It's kind of a puzzle game, but it's got a nice story to it too. I don't think it's especially deep. I don't think it goes on for too long, but I've really been enjoying it. It's very beautiful and it has a lot of interesting undertones and has this great sense of like uh, wonder and melancholy. It's it's hardly it's it, in some ways it doesn't even feel like a puzzle at times, but it's just the, the gameplay aspects are very pleasant. And then the story is really interesting and I, I think is very meaningful in our current day. I, I believe it's like $3 on the App Store. And then I think it's more if you get it on whatever else. But I highly recommend it. And I've really been enjoying it lately. And I, I hope uh, if anybody out there is interested in such things uh, that they, they give it a look. It's a good time. Uh, Paul, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I had just a great time. Thanks, John. I had a great time, too. That'll do. Best wishes in the interview.